Welcome back to another Sound Truth interview. I'm Adam Miller, and I'm joined today by Elisa Childers, who is the author of Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. Uh, she's been a voice within Christianity for quite a while, and I'm going to allow her to tell her story about how she got into the apologetics business, but I'm really excited to have her with us. Thank you so much for being a part of the many voices for that one message. Well, thanks, Adam. It's great to be with you. And uh, so you referenced a little bit of my backstory. You're right. It's kind of an odd transition in my life. I went from being a CCM artist to being an online apologist, essentially, an <laughs> author. So never saw that one coming. But basically, I grew up in a Christian home, had great Christian parents. I've loved Jesus and the Bible as far back as I can remember. Uh, I spent the better part of a decade with the recording group Zoe Girl. Some of your listeners may remember Zoe Girl. And uh, so after Zoe Girl came off the road in 2007, 2008, uh, I was invited to sing at a, at a church in Tennessee where I live. And my husband and I loved this church. We started attending there. And it was in the context of a smaller type class that that I was a part of at this church that the pastor told us that he was agnostic and that he basically was kind of going through this deconstruction process Mm. that we see so much going on um, in our news feeds and things. And so uh, I stayed in the class for about four months, but it was really in that class that everything I'd ever believed about Jesus and God and the Bible was sort of put on this chopping block, explained away, deconstructed. And after we left, it really sent me into a dark night of the soul, just a, a deep time of doubting everything I'd believed my whole life. And so the long story short is that God used apologetics to help rebuild my faith. And so in 2016, I decided to start a blog to, to maybe help some other people that might be going through some some similar things. And then from there came the book. And so it's just kind of been a wild ride. But that's what I do now. So I, I speak and I, I uh, write books and I have a YouTube channel and a podcast. It is interesting because you, you, you bring up a very kind of poignant topic and it's really the topic of your book that there's been a trend within kind of contemporary Christianity to become more progressive and move away from the kind of orthodox positions of the faith. And uh, I I had a lot of friends in Bible college doing the same thing, kind of going towards uh, progressive ideas, and it really caused me to go the opposite direction. I think you have a similar story. It's kind of Mm -hmm. funny how that worked out, but you're talking from an industry where we have, at least as outsiders, watched a lot of people even denouncing their faith, walking away from Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of a phenomenon, isn't it? We're seeing all these deconstruction stories very often coming from the music industry, Christians who have done Christian music for a long time. And I think there are some things that contribute to those, uh, to make Christian artists vulnerable. You know, you're kind of on this, isol- you have this isolated life, you're on a tour bus and people put you up on a pedestal. They they expect a lot out of you. And, you know, it's not... You know, if you're singing, if you're a Christian artist, it doesn't mean you're necessarily a pastor, but people kind of see you that way. Mm-hmm. So you feel like you have to sort of maintain this sort of thing that that people expect. And so I think some of those things can contribute to some of the deconstruction that we see. I know certainly in my case, when I went through my time of doubt and even some deconstruction, um, I never saw it coming. I didn't understand what was happening to me at the time, but I knew in my heart that God was real and I knew Christianity was true. And so I just went 
on this quest to study. I All of these skeptical claims that came to me in this class that I was in, which, by the way, that church went on to identify itself as a progressive Christian church, which mm. is why the book that I wrote sort of addresses that movement. But all of those claims, I, I knew there had to be somebody else that had all that data, but had come to a different conclusion. And so that's when I began studying apologetics. Yeah. The, the title of your book is Another Gospel. And I think that it's really important for us to point that out, that we are not talking about a different version of it. It's not, it hasn't morphed or changed. It really is a completely different presentation, isn't it? It is. And that's the the main point I try to make in the book. And I trace this through my story and I, I hit all the theological points. But the essential thesis of the book is that this, what, what we're calling progressive Christianity, which by the way is what they refer to themselves, as they call themselves, it's not a derogatory term. But progressive Christianity, I think a lot of people have a misconception that progressive Christians are just a group of Christians who still believe the basic gospel, but maybe they've expanded their horizons on politics, or maybe they're just shifting a little bit on some social issues. Uh, but that isn't the case. The, with progressive Christianity, you have denials of all, of, virtually all of the core doctrines, the historic doctrines of the Christian faith, the things that actually define the gospel and tell us what this good news is that we're supposed to be preaching. So sure, they have shifted generally on politics and social issues, but along with it, they have denied the gospel. And so they're teaching uh, a different gospel. It's a different Jesus, and it's not a Jesus that can save you from your sins. It's a Jesus that can stand in solidarity with you, that can empathize with you, but is really powerless to save you because at the core of the theology of progressive Christianity is a denial of the atonement. You know, ever since the Reformation, there's always been a, a differing uh, views on a lot of topics. I mean, even some very core topics of baptism and communion. Uh, so why is it any different now? What are all these other things that we're disagreeing on, and why, is, why can't we have room for disagreement? Right. And you're right. As I began to study church history, kind of on this quest to uh, get to what Christianity is, that's that's the quest I went on, essentially, is when my faith was challenged, I thought, well, if I'm going to say that this is false, I want to make sure that I'm rejecting the real thing mm -hmm. and not just like a caricature of the real thing. And so I began to study church history. I went back to the earliest sources. I'm talking about pre-New Testament creeds that Christians affirmed. Uh, what defines Christianity? What makes it unique? in the world. And you're right. Over 2,000 years, we've had lots of disagreements. There have been schisms and reformations and disagreements over things like baptism. And that's why we have so many denominations. But when I went back to the earliest Christians, what I discovered is that there really are core beliefs that define Christianity, made it unique in the world, things that Jesus taught, the apostles taught, the early church taught. You trace those things throughout history, and then you begin to see this thread, this common core of beliefs. And these are things that that are so core, we can't agree to disagree on them and still call ourselves Christians. Things like the atonement, the resurrection of Jesus, his deity, uh, the sinless life of Jesus, his second coming. I'm talking, I, I'm not talking about, you know, should women be in ministry or, you know, should we speak in tongues? These are, these are core gospel issues that directly affect salvation. And these are the core issues that are being denied in progressive Christian circles. How do we identify what those core issues are, especially today, when it does seem like a lot of these issues are, some are elevated higher than they need to be, and some are not mm -hmm. elevated high enough? 
Yeah, that's a, and that's a great question. In fact, the final chapter of my book deals with this question of what are the essentials? Everybody talks about core doctrines and essentials. And then I, I actually, when I was researching for the book, I did a Google search for core essential doctrines. And the first, I think, five to seven articles that showed up had every single one of them had a different list of core essential doctrines, what they considered to be essential. And I thought, man, okay, how do we define this? And so there's a scholar named Norm Norm Geisler, who I follow his work on this because I think he gets it right. And when we're talking about essentials, what we're talking about are the beliefs and the teachings that will directly hinder someone from being saved or or teach them to be saved. So this has to do with salvation. So if there's a doctrine that we can argue about in heaven, then that would be secondary. Not saying it's not important, but that's something that we can agree to disagree on. We can't agree to disagree about how to get saved, the nature of God, these these core things that Christians were unanimous on early on. Jesus was unanimous. And, And so I think we have to start there. And what you find is that list is actually probably smaller than people think it is, but it's also extremely robust. In fact, if you go back to what is arguably the earliest creed in Christian history, which Paul records for us in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, many scholars, even really liberal and skeptical ones, will date this creed anywhere from several months to seven years after Jesus' death. So that's really, really early. This is even before the New Testament was written. And what you have in that creed is that Jesus died for our sins. There was a real reason, a divine purpose, a sacrificial element and substitutionary element to his death, that there was some sort of uh, him solving the sin problem uh, in that early creed. You have the resurrection in that creed. Twice in that creed, it says in accordance with the scriptures, which, oh my goodness, that adds such a robust layer, because then if you go back and you see the scriptures that they were referencing, we're talking about messianic prophecies, Isaiah 53, and this is robust stuff for a really, really early creed. And this is what Paul said was of utmost importance. And so Paul was saying, you know, this is the highest level of stuff. We can't disagree on this stuff. And, and again, other doctrines are really important, and I have strong opinions on them. But I'm not going to say to somebody, you know, if they have a different view of baptism than me, I'm not going to say, well, you're not a Christian if you don't hold my specific view of baptism. But if somebody's denying the deity of Jesus or they're denying that he was raised from the dead, um, that's disqualifying as a Christian. Even Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. You're still in your sins. And so even according to Paul, if, if the resurrection didn't happen in history as a real event, Christianity is false. You might as well just live how you want. In a lot of these issues, I think that there is a, a, just an outright denial of portions of Scripture in their plain speech, where there's a lot of issues mm. where there's been a debate from high scholars on what specifically it means. That leaves a lot of room for disagreement. But there is an outright plain denial of portions of Scripture that are happening today. Yes, and that's probably, in my research and in my experience, the biggest difference between progressive Christians and what I would call historic Christians. So if we look at all the disagreements we've had throughout church history, uh, people were fighting their battles based on the Bible. They were saying, okay, the Bible is God's word. This is inspired by God. This is how we, this is authoritative for our lives. We live our lives by this book. And I might disagree with you on what this means. And you might disagree with me and we're going to fight it out. And we might even part ways at the end of the day, but we're in agreement that 
we're going to settle our arguments based on the truth of God's word. But in progressive Christianity, they read the Bible in an entirely different way. So when a progressive Christian reads for example, an Old Testament prophet saying, well, this is what God is saying to Israel. That is not necessarily what God said to Israel in the progressive view. They're going to say, well, those people were doing their best in their times and places to understand God. And they wrote their best understanding of God, but that wasn't necessarily God actually talking. And that transfers over to the New Testament as well, which is why in progressive Christianity, we find so many people disagreeing with the Apostle Paul. You'll hear people say things like, Paul had these prejudices and these biases that colored his view of sexuality or his view of women. And therefore, you know, we can disagree with what Paul was saying because he's representing Christianity in its infancy. But then to quote a progressive leader, Brian McLaren, we have a higher and wiser view of God now, so we can actually look back at Paul and do some corrections. And so that's that's the that's a huge difference between the way Christians have historically viewed the Bible and settled their arguments and how progressive Christians view the Bible. It's interesting because we're kind of picking and choosing what we like about the Bible. It seems that the culture is playing a larger role on what and how we interpret. Or, or there's a authority over the Bible that we're using mm. to to measure the the importance of the Word of God, um, but this has become mainstream. And I wonder if it has to do in some way with the way in which uh, we've become biblically illiterate to where, uh, as a culture, as Christians, we don't know our Bibles the way we ought to know our Bibles, so we're not able to identify error where it's uh, very prominent in, in the public eye. I think that's right. And especially in progressive circles, you have uh, many progressive Christian thought leaders who are extremely biblically literate. And they know, I mean, they know the pastor that led the church I was at that ended up going progressive, knew the Bible better than anybody I'd ever known. And I think there's an A.W. Tozer quote, I'll have to paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me, but it's so something like, the devil is a better theologian than anyone, and a devil still. And so I think you have these leaders that are, they know the Bible well enough that they can twist it really easily. And then the average Joe in the pew, and, and frankly, evangelicals can be guilty of this as well, but the average Joe in the pew isn't biblically literate. They're taking the leader's word for it. They're they're saying, well, they, they sound like they know what they're talking about, so that must be right. They begin to parrot those talking points. And um, man, on both sides of the aisle, we, we need to be, do better than that. We can't just parrot what people are saying. We have to investigate the scriptures for ourselves because one thing I've seen, I've seen progressive talking points get uh, repeated so many times, which it's so easy to refute if you just open scripture and you'll see it right there. Um, But again, I think that with the way the Bible is viewed, you know, you can twist it a certain way, but then you're also free to disagree with it. So there's really no bottom line when it comes to scripture, which as you sort of hinted at a moment ago, makes yourself and your sort of your preferences, your, your moral conscience, your opinions, that becomes the authority that you judge Scripture by rather than the other way around. It seems that if you're playing to people's responses, it's very easy to to get people to agree with you emotionally, especially if it's something that's very strong and persuasive. It's in our public media. It's in our public zeitgeist. It's very easy to draw people in on an opinion without basing it in the Word of God. We are really setting people up with a, a false platform, a false position and, uh, you know, as Paul told Timothy, we're, we're tickling ears because we're playing to the least common denominator as opposed to the faithfulness of getting into the Word of God and digging it out and explaining it for its original meaning. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And what's interesting about the progressive movement with that point in particular is that they will outright tell you that they value personal conscience. Uh, in, in a recent book written on the Bible by a progressive author, uh, the author wrote, you have a God-given conscience that you're supposed to use when you read scripture. And that's how you tell fact from fiction. This is how you separate truth from lies, uh, mythology from real history. It's, it's you use this God-given conscience that God's given you. In fact, the, the author even implied to do anything else is going to make you susceptible to a cult or something along those lines, which largely in progressive churches, they do view a lot, large swaths of evangelicalism as very cultish because there are these doctrines that are immovable. These, these are things we've said, okay, we're not going to budge on these things, which to the, the postmodern relativism that's sort of informing the progressive movement, that sounds dogmatic. It sounds intolerant and bigoted and hateful, kind of like what we see from, from secular culture as well. There's an alignment there in that sort of postmodern mood that's dominating our culture. It seems that there is a, a, a strong feeling of, of wanting to embrace people, you know, they might be 10% bad, but I mean, 90% of their stuff's pretty good. You know, you're coming in, out of an industry where Christian music, there is a large, it's a very large umbrella. And there mm. are particular groups that will deny, outright deny specific doctrines and yet still have uh, their songs sung in 90% of the churches in America today. So, I mean, how yeah. cautious do we really need to be when we're dealing with this sort of thing? Well, we we do need to be very cautious because the Bible tells us to. It says, test every spirit, be sober-minded and vigilant. We need to, uh, in, the author of Hebrews warns us to not drift from what we've heard there. In fact, when, in one of the chapters in my book, I was researching, just trying to figure out how many times the New Testament addresses false teaching and false prophets. And directly addressed in all but two, I think, New Testament books is the is what to do about false teaching, false teachers, and it's told in the strongest of terms. And in the other two, it in every single New Testament book, you have admonitions toward using discernment and testing everything against truth and against scripture. And so we we have this alarm in the New Testament throughout virtually every book and yet so many Christians think oh well I don't want to I don't want to you know call out a false teaching because that's kind of mean or that's that's infringing on someone's freedom to think for themselves or something along those lines but if we're going to call ourselves Jesus followers and biblically based Christians we have to wake up a little bit and see that this was a huge theme in New Testament scripture and I think that we need to take it a little bit more seriously yeah, we're kind of dipping our toes in the water here and, uh, you know, saying it's not so bad, you know. Uh, and it's it's a danger in the sense that we're getting acclimated to something that uh, kind of sneaks itself in. And I think that's something that's very common in our culture as well, where uh, the ideas of our culture have really started to do more in, in eisegeting the text as opposed to understanding the text. We're bringing in a lot of baggage that's not being confronted. Yeah, and that's true. And I think that, um, you know, in my experience with the progressive church course, a lot of, a lot of Christians do eisegesis. We read ourselves, you know, what we want out of, out of the text rather than what the text actually means. Um, and I think that part of this problem, at least that I've observed, is, you know, you kind of mentioned biblical illiteracy. I know that growing up in the church, I grew up in um, evangelical church, loved the Bible, read the Bible my whole life, loved Jesus, um, but I was never taught 
hermeneutics, for example, I was never taught an appropriate way to interpret the Bible. So I thought that I could go into the Old Testament and, you know, read myself into that. I'm, I'm David slinging the stones at Goliath, not realizing that, you know, I actually, if I'm anybody in that story, I'm the scared Israelites that are cowering in fear, you know, waiting for a savior. And, and so I thought I could apply a whole bunch of stuff to promises I would pick out from the Old Testament for myself. My grandma gave me this little promise book that, mm-hmm. 90% of it were verses taken out of context. And so I think that, you know, that may have made me a little bit vulnerable to not know how to answer this pastor who was all of a sudden bringing all of this intellectual rigor against what I believed. And so I think one of the ways we can safeguard uh, people in the church is is to do better at teaching systematic theology, good hermeneutics, even when, you know, you really want to claim that Old Testament promise, but you actually don't because there's a curse that goes along with it. And if Israel didn't do it, they got the curse. You don't want that. So you don't just get to take the promise. You know, just showing people why it's good to interpret the Bible properly and and teaching apologetics and uh, church history and just a whole host of things because we have so much skepticism now. And it's at everyone's fingertips through the internet and social media. It's everywhere. So we just need to be like solid on what we believe and why we believe it. Yeah. I think it's funny because, you know, we're talking about biblical illiteracy and how susceptible we are to some of these false truths. In many ways, as a pastor, you know, it's made my life a lot easier because I can sound really intelligent by making plain the simplest of truths that people just have never heard before. But the reality is it's showing of the fact that we have not really built a, a theology, a core, a hermeneutic, a way of understanding how to interpret the Bible and this leaves people very vulnerable because the the dominating voices in our culture sound so strong and they have such a compelling argument towards morality that it is very persuasive to follow uh, their path. Yeah, and in my book I talk about reasons people are drawn to progressive Christianity, and you just touched on a big one, which is morality. So, you know, you have these young people growing up in the church and culture is telling them that the biblical view of sexuality is not just wrong, mm. but they're being told, hey, even if you believe this, you're actually hurting people. You're causing people to be depressed. You're causing people to kill themselves. So I can imagine the pressure that a young person who grew up in the church might be feeling to think, well, I can hang on to Jesus and I can I can keep my my, you know, title Christian, but I can go over here and I can affirm the culture's version of sexuality and still call myself a Christian because that's what you're going to get in the progressive church. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons that especially younger people are so drawn to that movement because they can, they can not feel like they're hateful. They can feel like they're actually they're adopting the world's definition of love, but they feel like they're being more loving. But the thing I point out in my book is by doing that, though, for whatever reason people go into progressive Christianity, whether it's uh, spiritual abuse or maybe they grew up in a hyper-legalistic environment or uh, observing hypocrisy and moral failing, all of that stuff, whatever the reasons are, they're going to find that they'll be totally accepted, but nothing will be demanded of them. And so it's kind of like if you have cancer and you go to a hospital you know, sometimes the medicine, I've had friends go through chemo, it's horrible. The, the side effects are terrible, but it's the cure and it's what, it's what will help. 
Whereas in progressive Christianity, it's like you're going over there with cancer and they're just going to give you a comfy bed and a pillow and make you comfortable, but you're going to die because they throw out the gospel, which is the cure for all of, you know, even some legitimate things. If somebody went through spiritual abuse, the progressive church is not the cure. The gospel, the real gospel is the cure for that. And so that's, that's a, an interesting point you made there about morality because I, I address that in my book as being one of the reasons people are drawn to it. It seems that the, the, plans, the tactics, the, the, the method of Satan has, has changed for our day today, and it sounds so attractive. It's such a strong, compelling argument, uh, but, it, but it is a lie. At the very core and the foundation of it, it is offering uh, you know, a, a false premise of hope, a false premise of truth that, uh, that many Christians, if they're not built up with the Word of God, are, are really easily susceptible to. And it's a very subtle shift, mm-hmm. too. It's it's something, it's not like you're going to be going to church and then one Sunday they're going to announce, okay, by the way, we're a progressive church now. It's something that happens very slowly. Uh, often language is co-opted, so words will be redefined without anybody even knowing what's happened. Words like love, words like tolerance, even doctrinal words like incarnation, resurrection. Uh, lots of those words get redefined, and so they start being used with like this double use. And so it can be very tricky to discern, and it can be a very subtle shift. For example, in some churches, they might just hire one pastor who might lean progressive, and so he starts to bring some of these teachings in very slowly but then the next week you hear a really solid gospel sermon so you think oh it's it's probably fine or he was just talking a lot about love i'm sure that that that's fine um but one one of the things i i tell people who might be trying to discern that in their own churches a friend of mine who went to this church that i was at she stayed years longer than i did and she was having a hard time discerning it. So she kept a notebook with her. And every time the pastor said something that gave her any kind of a red flag, she wrote it down. And she said it took a year. But she went back after a year and she looked at her notebook and she went, whoa, like we have drifted and we have floated off the reservation here. I just mixed my metaphors, but you know what I mean? <laughs> so like we have left the the dock here. And so, um, you know, that's even a good practical idea for people who might be having trouble discerning if they're, you know, because there are other false gospels too. There's there's progressive Christianity is one form of false of, of a false gospel, but there are others. But I think knowing the real thing really well and then just really taking note when you hear things that deviate from the real thing um, can be a really practical thing that Christians can do to help themselves to discern some of these things. Because it's so confusing, especially with the internet and just the availability of information today. I think that sh- subtle shift is is the danger there because, you know, the devil wants to tell us that you can have your Christianity, you just have to give this little bit. And it's those little tiny things that really start to take more and more room. And and as we've done that, it, there's a compelling argument. You know, we're losing our culture. We're losing mm-hmm. our significance. We, you know, we have to make sure that we regain the, the kind of zeitgeist of who we are as Christians in the public eye. And that attempt is slowly going to shift our foundation to where we're no longer proclaiming a gospel of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Our, our message will change because we're going to have to be subtle, more subtle to be attracted and, and to be intertwined with the world. The gospel has never been like a cultural win, right? Mm-hmm. If you look yeah. all throughout church history, uh, it, it blew my mind when I really studied the first century and what Christians were facing. 
it's so much the same in so many ways. Uh, you had Christians having to stand for marriage. I mean, look at the reason John the Baptist was in prison in the first place. He criticized Herod's marriage. Like you can't, you can't marry her and nobody wants to be told who they can marry or who they can't marry. And those were issues. Um, issues of biblical sexuality were huge in the first century. Abortion was a big problem in the first century. Infanticide was a huge problem. And it was the Christians who had to stand against these sort of cultural zeitgeists, as you mentioned. And so it's not like we're facing anything new. I just think that in the United States, we've enjoyed uh, really a lot of freedom to believe Christianity. It's been fairly easy. And uh, I don't know where that's going. It seems like it's starting to get a little bit more difficult to just, I mean, nobody's probably going to get imprisoned or anything like that, like in the first century. But you know, it makes you unpopular. You can get canceled. You can, you can, I've, I've had friends lose jobs over stuff like this. And so I think that an eye to history is what will be really helpful here for Christians to say, look, we're not facing anything new. Um, we have the same Holy Spirit that the first century Christians had, and we have the same Bible. We have the same word of God. And I, and uh, of course, not that the New Testament was well, written in the first century, but not widely distributed. But they had the Old Testament scriptures and the teaching of the apostles and the letters. And we have all that. And so we we are equipped to face whatever the culture is bringing at us. But I agree with you. I think we need to stop worrying about being relevant and cool to the culture because it's just not going to happen. It's never, it's never going to happen because the spirit of the age is always going to be antithetical to the gospel. So we might find ourselves finding little surges of time when we can influence culture and it can be like moved for the better for a bit. But I don't think that's going to be sustainable until Jesus comes back. The subject is very alarming. I think a lot of people hearing us right now are going to say, I didn't even know this was happening. You know, I kind of got whims of it, but I didn't realize how pervasive or how susceptible that I am to this kind of progressive uh, talk about the gospel. So what can our listeners do? What can, how they, can they look at what's going on around them and, and evaluate it, but also interpret and understand the foundations that we have been given in contrast to what is being presented to us? Well, the first thing is kind of what we talked about already. Biblical literacy is so important. Uh, I There's this famous preacher story that probably every pastor is told at one time or another. And um, I don't know if it's true or not, but the point is well made in that the story goes that Secret Service agents are taught to recognize counterfeit bills not by studying the counterfeits, but by studying the real thing. So they sit there and they handle real money all day long so that when a counterfeit bill comes across their desk, it doesn't matter where it came from. They recognize it immediately. I think that's a great analogy for what Christians can do as far as guarding themselves against this types of deception. Stay in the Bible. Stay in prayer. Uh, know what you believe and why you believe it. Study church history, hermeneutics, systematic theology. Know the real things so well that it doesn't matter what comes across your desk, you'll spot it immediately if it doesn't line up with, with the historic Christian gospel. I mean, just look at the words of Jesus. I'll just give you one example in progressive Christianity. So progressive Christians call themselves Christians. They would say, yes, we're Jesus followers, but they disagree with Jesus on several points. They disagree with Jesus' view of the Bible. Uh, we look and see Jesus dozens of times calling the Old Testament scriptures the word of God. He When he 
quotes an Old Testament prophet, most most of the time when he does that, he says, God said to you. He's mm-hmm. not just quoting a man. He says, this is what God said. And he quotes the Old Testament prophet. Progressives disagree with that. Jesus identified himself with the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 in the upper room. He he said he was instituting a new covenant in his blood. Progressive Christians don't agree with Jesus on the atonement. They don't agree with Jesus on what the gospel is. You know, Jesus tells lots of parables to talk about the kingdom of God and what this what this kingdom is. And you have all kinds of separations of sheep and goats, doors closing on the wedding feast, people being cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Progressive Christians don't agree with that version of the gospel. So if you know the real thing, if you know what Jesus taught, if you know what the Bible says, you will much more easily spot that counterfeit when it comes your way. And you don't even have to worry about what the counterfeit's called because you know the real thing. I think you're right. The best way to address false teaching is with the right teaching, and we need to become better equipped understanding it. And I, I was thinking of the same illustration that you used when I when I was asking that question, but I think it's absolutely important for us to know the gospel. Uh, this is something we try to emphasize all the time, and to know the gospel means we need to hear the gospel, we need to repeat the gospel, we need to rehearse the gospel. Yes. It needs to be front and center. And I think that sometimes we think that the gospel has been you know, figured out already. We talk about the gospel as Christians. I always say we sound like, uh, you know, Christian turkeys, gospel, 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 gospel. <laughs> but we're not actually presenting the gospel. We're not communicating the truths of the gospel, that it's for us, that we must repent, that we're sinners mm-hmm. who have found grace. And once we've done that, we've exercised that fruit of repentance, uh, that that really is training us to address the issues where that message goes off course so easily and so subtly that people don't even realize uh, that it's deviated. And I'll give you an example. So what you just said is so important because it's not like progressive Christians will deny that sin exists, Mm -hmm. right? So there's a caricature. People say, oh, they don't want to talk about sin. Well, that's not really true. If you read their books, they talk about sin. They talk about uh, all kinds of different ways that Christians fall short. We get things wrong. They might frame it in different terms. But they don't believe that sin separates us from God. So this is where the key is, though. They believe we do wrongheaded things. And I've even heard progressive Christians characterize uh, people having a blind commitment to darkness. I mean, that sounds like a fallen nature to me. But what they don't believe is that that sin separates you from God. So they'll even teach Genesis 3 saying, you know, it wasn't their sin that separated them from God. It was their shame. And then the the way they'll expound that is to say, they were never separated from God. You're not separated from God. None of us are separated from God. If we're separated, it's self-imposed. It's because we think that we're not worthy enough. We think we're not good enough to be loved by God. So we just need to recognize our belovedness. And once we do, then that, that unity with God happens again. Now, notice how subtle that is for the, for the average person. Well, you know, they did feel shame. They were naked and afraid and, or naked and ashamed and, and they had to cover themselves. And that kind of can make sense within the grid of scripture, but they're leaving out a huge, a huge important topic. And that's the holiness of God, that God is perfectly holy, who can't have unity with any sin. And so it can be so easy to fall into some of these traps, especially with the double use of language. Um, but yeah, it's it's like these subtle little twists on scripture that even, you know, a seasoned Christian might go, oh, well, that's an interesting way to put it. But when you 
follow it all the way down the rabbit trail, you're losing the holiness of God, you're losing the atonement, you're losing a whole host of really essential doctrinal truths that define the gospel, that have made the gospel unique in the world for 2,000 years. I have to say how grateful I am uh, to you. We've been around for uh, 57 years here in New England, but I'm excited to see ministries like yours popping up and really speaking into our culture to address a lot of these issues and really gaining a following. I think people are really starting to hunger for the truth because we're being tossed to and fro. And, mm. you know, whatever is the new thing now is going to be wrong tomorrow. And you, right. you're on one side and then the next thing you know, oh, well, you, you have, you've, you're lost, you're behind. And I think a lot of our listeners have felt that. But we need mm. to stick to the consistent truths. And we also need strong voices that are, are communicating that message to us to, to get back to the basics of what Christianity is all about. Yeah, it's funny because the basics to so many people are the deep truths now. I was talking with a pastor in Canada. I was was teaching um, about progressive Christianity at a very small little church there. And he said, you know, the difficult thing is that this is so basic, but it's not. It's not basic because people haven't ever been taught this. And I think that's probably the greatest uh, tragedy in the church is that so many Christians don't know what the gospel is. I appreciate what you've done in writing this book. Uh, We've been talking with Elisa Childers about another gospel, a lifelong Christian seeks truth in response to progressive Christianity. Uh, Normally I ask this before we get started with the interview, but uh, if you don't mind me asking you now, would you be willing to pray for our listeners that they would... Uh, that they would have the discernment, that the Spirit would give them the understanding of the gospel as they listen to it, as they hear it, as they listen to us talk, that it would encourage them, because this is a very heavy and discouraging conversation mm. to see where the world is going. But we can be, we can be hopeful in the midst of this, yeah. that, that when we cling to the truth, that the truth will set us free. That's right. That's good. Yes, I'd be happy to pray. Um, Father, we come uh, just before you asking in Jesus' name that you would shine your light on every person listening to this and watching this, that you would draw them to the truth of the gospel. I pray for every Christian listening that might feel a little bit discouraged right now. I pray that you would encourage their hearts with the knowledge that we know that none of this is new. We know we have example after example after example all throughout Scripture and throughout our church history of faithful Christians going to their deaths for these truths. These truths are worth defending. They're worth believing. They're worth giving our lives for. They're worth sacrificing our popularity for. And I pray that you would equip every single one of us to have that mindset that we would put you first, that we would put our our trust in you above all the value we would put on relationships and jobs and even YouTube platforms and podcasts and whatever may come, Lord, may, and I pray this for myself too, Lord, may I always be allegiant to, to truth and to who you are before anything else. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts Uh, knowing that when we suffer for the sake of Christ, we actually partake in the sufferings of Christ. And that's actually a gift that we receive joyfully, Lord. We thank you that we have the opportunity to partake in the sufferings of Christ, even as small as they may be in a country where uh, we've been so protected and so safe uh, in these beliefs for so long. But I pray that you would encourage the heart of every person listening and fill us with a hunger to read your word. Lord, I know that that's something so many people struggle 
trouble with. The Bible feels boring or it just doesn't come alive to me or I don't understand it. All of these reasons that that these hindrances to people reading the Bible, I pray that you would help us to overcome those sort of hurdles, that we would fall in love with your word, that we wouldn't be able to get enough. And I, I know that these are the kind of prayers you love to answer because you want us to hide your word in our hearts. And so we ask you to help us, give us the help to do that, to stay connected with you in prayer all day long, even if it's just a quick, help me, God, help me, Lord, give me wisdom, give me discernment. I pray that over everybody listening in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For any of you who are listening and you felt the kind of pressure we have in our culture today to uh, feel the whiplash of 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 the kind of moral progressive approach to to things, and you feel like you need to get back to the basics, this is a great resource. We've been talking uh, with Elisa Childers about another gospel: a lifelong Christian seeks truth in response to progressive Christianity. This is a great resource that will help us to understand how to fight for the things that matter most and to prioritize the the foundations of our faith. Uh, Elisa, thank you so much for sharing your story. I know you put yourself out here and make yourself very vulnerable in, in talking through this and sharing how you went through this on your own, but I think that that helps us to understand that this is a journey that's a struggle, but it's one worth fighting. It is. Amen. Great to be with you today, Adam. Thank you.